0: God, you are gracious and kind,
1: and we come today mostly to be in your presence, to be reminded of your love and your care for us, and so I pray that you would make your presence known this morning, that you would show yourself through your word, and that by your spirit we might encounter you this morning. Amen. So the last few weeks, uh, we've been following the story of Abraham, and we've heard of both his faith and his failures. But today, we're going to hear a story that's dropped in the middle of Genesis, actually in the middle of Abraham's story, about a young woman named Hagar, who was also pursued by God. She is maybe an unlikely candidate for this pursuit in the eyes of the world. She was a foreigner. She was a slave. And she didn't submit like she was supposed to to the authority that was over her. She was a victim of both physical and sexual abuse. And she was a rebel in many ways. In her culture, others probably would not consider her worthy of pursuit or the attention of God. But God did. As a brief reminder of the story that has come before Hagar enters the scene, God had promised Abram multiple times that he would give him numerous descendants and that he would make Abram's name great. But this promise had yet to be fulfilled, and at this point in the story, it had actually been about ten years since the promise was first made. And both Abram and Sarai, again, choose to engage this situation in front of them out of fear and anxiety at the expense of this young woman, Hagar. And so I'm going to invite Chris Sampson up uh, to read the story from Genesis 16. Thanks,
0: Chris. This is the Word of God from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan, Ten years, Sarai took his wife, uh, uh, Sarah's Sarah. his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai said to Abram, oh, excuse me. um, I missed my place. Uh, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was spring... It was a spring beside the road uh, to the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away with my, from my mistress, Sarai said. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave his name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beir Lahay Roy, It is still there between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael.
1: Thanks, Chris. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as Suzanne mentioned in her sermon a few weeks ago, Abram and Sarai often make some of their decisions based on faith. They also often make some of their decisions based on their fear. And in this passage today, yet again, we are shown both Abram and Sarai making some pretty awful decisions based on their anxiety and fear expense of the vulnerable person in their midst. The text opens with Sarai trying to make sense of God's promises to her husband. You see, Up until this point in the story, God's promises had actually only been to the offspring of Abram. God had not yet named Sarai in the promises that he was making. And so Sarai sees that Abram is getting older and that she has yet to bear any children for him. And she draws the conclusion that God's promises must not include her. Because in God's mind, because God had, in Sarah's mind, had plenty of time to work in that way, and she was tired of waiting. So she decided to try something else. And then there's Abram, who really is in a very similar predicament. He wanted the son that God had promised him, and he was getting impatient, and God never said that Sarai was the way that he was going to provide descendants, and now he's getting pressure from his wife, and he doesn't have any better ideas, and God's not saying anything more specific about what he's supposed to do. So he tries a seemingly simple solution. See, when I first reread this story, I noticed that I was pretty quick to jump to judgment at the impatience and lack of faith of the characters in this story. Like, come on, Sarah, pull it together. Why are you so impatient? Clearly, God expects to provide a child through Abram's wife. Or come on, Abram, have some faith. Stand up for your wife a little bit. But then I look at the information that they actually had, And I remember my own confusion and impatience and struggle when I'm waiting on God's promises, and I also feel the pull to take power into my own hands. Can anyone else relate to that? I often feel the desire to try to make something happen, to stop standing still, and I empathize with Sarai and Abram, at least at this part in the story. And just as God later in this story finds and encourages Hagar... God also sees both Sarai and Abram, and he works with their frustration and confusion too. After this story, after all of the struggle we read about in this passage, God actually does not quickly condemn them. He reaffirms his covenant with them, and he makes Sarai uh, explicitly named in this promise. God noticed even Sarai in her pain and need, even after she acted terribly and out of anxiety, and tried to grasp for control, because God is gracious across the board, even when it frustrates us. And he is gracious even when we sin, and we hurt, and we operate out of our brokenness. But part of the problem in this story is that the fear and anxiety that prompted Sarai's actions had lasting consequences. Her attempts to control affected not just herself and her husband, but she has now used and abused another human to get to her desired end. Our operating out of fear and anxiety often creates collateral damage, doesn't it? So now, at this point in the story, Hagar, an Egyptian slave, is summoned. Up until this point in the book of Genesis, she has been unmentioned, unnecessary, and unseen, and she is brought into the light here only to be used as a pawn, the means to an end. She is not seen as a person worthy of honor, and she is seen only through a lens of how she can be useful to someone else. The text even shows us that Sarai intends to claim her child as her own, to build up her own family through Hagar. So Hagar is abused and used, and she becomes pregnant, and we're told that she begins to despise Sarai, understandably. So Sarai gets upset and runs to Abram and turns her anger on him, And Abram responds to her complaints by telling her that she can treat Hagar however she wants. Hagar is, after all, a slave. And so again, Hagar is reminded of her status. She is nothing like an animal. Sarah mistreats and disregards her humanity. Her future is unimportant, and her freedom appears to be non-existent. So she does the only thing that she knows how to do. She runs. Now, I find myself cheering for Hagar at this point in the story. She's escaped. She is free from her oppressors. Her child can now be fully her child. She gets out from under the yoke of slavery and from under the harsh authority of Sarai. True, she faces a wilderness ahead of her, but apparently that wilderness seemed preferable to staying under the harsh treatment of Sarai. And I can imagine her running and testing her newfound freedom The road that she is running down is actually the road to Egypt, which would be her home that she was taken from. But it's many miles through sparse deserts before she would reach that goal. Now, I imagine that as she got farther away, fear also started nagging her. She was alone and pregnant with no food and no shelter. There was no interstate between Canaan and Egypt and no rest stops along the way. And I imagine Hagar sitting at this spring a source of comfort for the moment, pondering her options. And it's at this point in the story that the text tells us that the angel of the Lord found Hagar. He followed her. He did not stay located solely with the patriarch God had chosen, but he pursued a slave girl into the wilderness one who in society's eyes was disobedient and perhaps unruly in the eyes of her master, God pursues this woman who was used to being forgotten about or only sought after when she was useful. God finds her. And the first thing he does is to ask her a question. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where did you come from and where are you going? Now let's be clear, the angel of the Lord probably already knows the answers to these questions, right? He doesn't have to ask her. He actually shows that he already knows Hagar by naming her and naming her position, but he asks her a question and he lets her have a voice. He honors her by letting her speak and by caring about what she has to say. Notice though that Hagar is only able to give the answer to one of his questions. She is running away from her mistress. She doesn't know where she's going, and honestly, the most likely scenario is that both she and her child are going to die in the wilderness. That reality makes the next comment from the angel of the Lord a little bit easier to swallow, but honestly, I still want to resist it. The angel of the Lord, roughly translated into Hebrew, says, go back to your mistress and humble yourself under her hand. Now i have to be honest with you i only know that that's how the hebrew talks about this because the verse really bothered me and i was hoping that the original language would make the situation easier and it doesn't really god still tells hagar to return to a situation where she was being mistreated now i want to very clearly state that in our modern context this in no way means that people who are being abused in a relationship are supposed to stay and submit to abuse that is not the heart of god The situation in this text is one where Hagar can either return to a harsh environment where she would be fed and sheltered and able to give birth to her son, or to keep running and both she and her child would die in the wilderness. In that context, there were no other options. In our context, there are. But with that said, the call to Hagar is still a hard one to swallow. I wrestled with this part of the passage for a long time, and I think the main thing that we should see for our context is that sometimes the path of life does not always feel like an easy path. The path before Hagar was one of seeming freedom that would likely lead to death or painful submission that would keep her alive. And so God directs her back to life. And he does so with a promise. He says to her, I will increase your descendants so much that they become too numerous to count. Now, since we have, as a church, been spending a lot of time in Genesis, this promise should sound a little familiar to you. This is almost the exact promise that God made to Abram Hagar, a slave girl who has been used to being looked past and unimportant and mistreated. This woman, whose very existence was used as a means to an end, is now being extended the very same promise that was given to God's chosen one. Might Hagar also be God's chosen one? And might we also be God's chosen one? You see, this promise made by God extended honor to this daughter, and he turns this slave into the matriarch of an entire nation. He does this for us too today especially for those of us who are vulnerable. He takes our old identities, the identities that the world places on us, and raises us up to places of honor. In Christ's death and resurrection, he has made the ultimate action of pursuit. He has fought the powers that kept us captive, and he won. And he has given his life for our freedom. He has definitively proclaimed that we are not worthless that we are not to be used as pawns by the enemy. We are not to live hidden inside of a story. We are extended the promises of the kingdom. Just as Hagar did not expect that, to be extended the same promises as Abraham, we may not expect that, but we have been given the gifts of the kingdom by our God. And just as God pursued Hagar, following her into the desert to draw her back to the path of life, God will keep pursuing us in every way he possibly can. You may not hear an audible voice or be greeted by an angel like Hagar was. Maybe you will. But God is always pursuing us. He pursues us through invitations from our friends or families by loving us through them. He pursues us by stirring up our desires for, for love and acceptance. He pursues us through the words of Scripture and through the things that make us yearn for connection. God is drawing us to himself. God is always drawing us to himself. And so if you have been waiting for God to make himself known to you or to break into the mundane of your daily life, hear this story as God's word to you this morning. He has found you in your wilderness. He is calling you to life, and he wants you to know that he sees you. In your misery and your joy, he sees you, and he gives you a voice and a place of honor. And then finally, we get to my favorite part of this story. Because Hagar has been noticed by God, she has been seen, and so she chooses to respond in a way that actually is an act of worship, but she, she does something beautiful. She names God. A slave girl from Egypt says, I have seen El Roy, which means the God who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me. It's actually one of the first places in scripture where a human being get, ascribes a name to God that he has not named himself. Isn't that beautiful? that the God of the universe allows a slave girl to name him, that this experience of a woman who was so often overlooked was deemed so important to God that it was canonized in our scripture. This naming is evidence of the way that God interacted with Hagar. He fundamentally altered her self-perception. Instead of one who was overlooked... She is now one who was seen, and instead of one who others deemed outside of God's covenant, she is now one who God has made a personal covenant with. She was noticed and pursued, and she was chosen by the God of the universe, and she is now empowered to respond in a way that still impacts our understanding of who God is thousands of years later. Friends, God is a God who sees even the seemingly invisible people, He sees those who society overlooks he sees you on the days when you feel alone in the world he sees you on the days when you feel overlooked by your spouse or when you think that no one notices your actions he sees you in love and grace when you try to hide he pursues you when you wander in the wilderness and he is always providing trees for shade and water to sustain you even when you're not aware that it's him And so now I want to invite you to consider a few questions. What maybe has caused you to run off in the wilderness in this season? Where and how might God be trying to find you today? And maybe today, as you listened, you were reminded of a time that God found you in the wilderness and drew you back to Him. If that's true, I invite you to think about what name would you give to God after that experience with him? What did you learn about God? What did you see from God in these seasons where he has rescued you and found you? Or maybe today you're still unconvinced. Maybe you don't know if God is pursuing you or you don't really want him to pursue you or you wonder how you would even know it was God. So I would invite you to look at the places of longing in your life and spend some time asking God if He's pursuing you there. If your desire for stability or your desire for connection is telling you something about God that he wants, you, he wants to offer you. Maybe for you, like Hagar, the people who are supposed to know who God is were the ones who have mistreated you or made you feel unworthy or forgotten. If that is true today, let me first say that I'm sorry for the ways that you have been neglected and forgotten. I'm sorry for the ways that our brokenness and our sin have contributed to your feelings of neglect. And I pray that today God would restore the image of himself that has been disfigured. I pray that he would begin to open your eyes to the ways that he wants to honor you and give you a new identity and new hope to walk in. Because God is a God who sees you and knows you inside and out. And he still chooses to keep pursuing you. So, whichever one of those questions resonated with you, I'm going to invite you to spend some time thinking about them as I read these words from Psalm 139. And then I will close us in prayer and we'll end our morning with some worship. Think about those questions as I read. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you let's pray loving god you see us and you know us even when we are unaware of you even when we are actively running or hiding from you you remain graciously present When the world deems us unworthy of pursuit, you continue to set your gaze on us and you do not allow anything to separate us from your love. We are not alone and we are not forgotten. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to pursue us. And I pray that today every plot of the enemy to keep us from the fullness of joy and life that is found in your presence would be broken away. I pray that we would leave knowing our chosenness, ones who are pursued by the creator of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen.